The Athletic. Football Show. Today, shock news from Stamford Bridge as football proves fickle for Thomas Tuchel and Chelsea turn to Graham Potter. Hmm, Potter to help Chelsea transition. J.K. Rowling would never. Elsewhere, there's all the midweek stories from Liverpool finding out how dangerous Naples really is to the incredible Shakhtar Donetsk. Plus, we preview the Premier League weekend featuring Man City Spurs, the Citizens against Kane and Co. Can Spurs do it again? It's the Totally Football Show. Thursday the 8th of September, listener, hello to you. We've got Duncan Alexander of TheAnalyst.com and Optusports. Hi, Duncan. Hello. Michael Cox. Are you still of zonalmarking.net, Michael? Or just no, all... not, not really. Just The Athletic is... Uh, all The Athletic. Yeah. And Tom Williams, who's sometimes of The Athletic and sometimes of French football coverage, is a flagship uh, English football show, Match of Z-Day. Tom Williams. Hello, James. That's genuinely what they call it. That's what it's called, Match of Z-Day, with, a, with the Z... Um, little, little, you know, nod to the difficulties that French people sometimes have pronouncing straightforward English words, um, and that's yeah, that's the show I'll be on on uh, on Saturday. Brilliant, brilliant. You'll be speaking French. Yes, I mean attempting to speak French. That's oh. the, that's that's the vibe. Brilliant. Okay, well that'll be all about the Premier League. Uh, but meantime, we've had a, a pretty busy midweek with with the Champions League. Uh, Duncan, you were just marvelling at the amount of extraordinary tales there were contained in those two days of fixtures. Yeah, I mean, I think once again, since they changed the seeding a few years back, we've been uh, blessed with some groups that are a lot, a lot more competitive. Um, mm. Quite helps when quite a lot of the British teams aren't very good, which obviously boosts up the narrative. But um, yeah, I think this kind of myriad stories already, which is uh, definitely often wasn't the case after match day one, maybe five or six years ago. Interesting, yeah. Can I just um, can I just commend Duncan on his uh, presence with us uh, this morning because he was <laughs> viciously attacked uh, by a bollard as we left mm. the pub on on Monday night. Um, oh. So it's it's good to see him. Uh, it's good to see him in action. There you go. Among the big stories, uh, Dinamo Zagreb beating Chelsea, which was quite a shock for for the London club. Still early days. I'm sure the Champions League winning manager is going to turn things around as long as no one does anything too hasty, eh? What's that? Wow. Wednesday morning, following the 1-0 defeat away at the Maximus Stadium, Chelsea, of course, gave us all a little surprise. And as they sacked Thomas Tuchel, the man who, on the one hand, had 18 months ago taken them to the European title and since then come within spot kicks of two domestic honours, but who, on the other hand, was getting a bit grumpy on the sideline. Well, to tell us more about the reasoning behind this decision and... Who's up next at Stamford Bridge? The Athletics' Liam Toomey joins us now. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Liam, good morning. Uh, this was a big shock for you Wednesday morning, I imagine. Uh, 24 hours on, what light can you shed on things? Um, apart from the fact that my head is still spinning, um, it's it's been a crazy, crazy day, even by Chelsea's standards. Things have moved incredibly quickly. I think the, the the sacking of Tuchel, that whole unravelling process happened a lot faster than most of us expected it to. And, of course, the the move to appoint Graham Potter as his replacement is moving at a rapid pace as well. And it, it became very, very clear very early on that he was 
the clear first choice of this new ownership. I think that the idea that people at the club weren't entirely happy with what was happening with the team it wasn't the huge surprise. But given the amount of money that they just dropped in the transfer window, it does seem all a bit surprising, particularly the club's line that this had already been decided even before their third defeat of this season away at uh, Dinamo Zagreb. Yeah, the timing is the most interesting aspect of all of this, I think. Uh, it makes a little bit more sense if you go along with some of the messaging that's coming out of the club more recently, the last few weeks, really stressing that the signings that Chelsea made were club signings, not Tuchel signings, um, that he was having input into that process, but he was not necessarily leading that process. And a lot more information has come to light, or at least come to light for us, um, since Tuchel was was sacked, that of just the extent to which they clashed over recruitment. Tuchel and the owners, both in terms of the types of players they were they were targeting and also just the extent to which Tuchel had to be involved and how much time it should have taken up of, of pre-season, for example, when Tuchel wanted to be coaching the team. So we're, there were things we were hearing at the time that suggested things weren't great behind the scenes, but we weren't expecting something like this to happen right now, particularly when you look at the uh, the grand reunion between Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and Thomas Tuchel lasting just 59 minutes in Zagreb. Yeah, indeed. What a 59 minutes as well. You have a piece coming out, which I think will be uh, on theathletic.com uh, by the time uh, this podcast uh, is published, which kind of gives Thomas's perspective on how things have gone wrong. A tenure that began so magnificently for him at Stamford Bridge lasted 100 games. And it's interesting how almost kind of exactly halfway through December last year, things took a very much a, a downward trajectory. Does he offer any perspective on that? I think there's, at this stage, it's more about the raw emotions um, from, from Tuchel's side of how it's all ended. He did not want to leave Chelsea now. He wanted to be a part of the future. He wanted to be a part of this next chapter. And, a, and that was a big reason why he didn't encourage interest from other clubs even as he navigated the the chaos that was the end of the Roman Abramovich era. But I think the big problem are the things that, you know, weren't necessarily addressed in that section of the the piece, which is the, the problems Chelsea were having on the pitch, the growing discontent within the squad with with Tuchel's man management. Uh, I think his his authority had been undermined by some of the things that he'd done as well during pre-season. And he didn't seem to have the answers for that. Well, one thing we heard, for example, was that during pre-season, Tuchel had two separate player meetings. One for players who were committed and ready to fight for the club and one for players whose futures were uncertain or wanted to leave. And of course, that immediately serves to divide the dressing room. But then when you compound that by picking some of the players who wanted to leave in the matchday squad for the opening weekend against Everton and leaving out some of the players who wanted to stay. A source described that to us as something that you, you can't really come back from as a coach. And and that's just one example of questionable man management decisions that Tuchel made um, in the final months. But also you, you would have to say pretty much over the final sort of nine, ten months of his tenure. Who's going to be in charge this weekend at Fulham for Chelsea? Well, if the owners get their way, it'll be Graham Potter. Um, this is moving very, very quickly and it could even be formally announced 
on Thursday. Uh, timing is tight because Fulham Chelsea is the early kickoff on Saturday, and I think even if Graham Potter is is actually in position, um, he might not have been able to do much work with the team. There might actually be parallels with Thomas Tuchel's first game where he had one training session before they faced Wolves. So at the moment, it's Anthony Barry leading things with uh, a Cobham coaching staff, which of course is is without Thomas Tuchel's backroom team. And it's, it's all very makeshift. So I, th- I think they want to get Potter and his, his team in as soon as possible because they're aware that there isn't much time for him to be able to hit the ground running. Absolutely. They're also talking or planning to talk to Mauricio Pochettino. Is that right? And what what's your perception of how likely it is or how positive they're feeling about their chances of landing the Brighton manager? Well, our understanding is that Pochettino was also contacted and that he was someone who was being looked at. But everything that we've heard, and there's a pretty overwhelming body of evidence in the piece and, and things that we've heard over the last 24 to 48 hours, suggests that Graham Potter is very much the first choice of Todd Bowley and the rest of this ownership group. And they're confident of getting him? I think they are, yeah. I think um, the fact that it's got to this stage, the fact that he came to London for talks on Wednesday, I think they, they don't think it would have got this far if, if Potter was going to say no, as of course he did to Tottenham previously. And I think there's also a feeling that, you know, from, from Potter's perspective, he has to take the plunge on a top job sooner or later. There's never going to be an ideal offer. You know, these, these, these jobs become available in less than ideal circumstances, usually, and often mid-season. So you have to back yourself at some point if you want to coach at the top level. All right. Liam, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy midweek uh, to fill us in on that and look forward to reading more in your piece on theathletic.com. Pleasure. Liam Toomey there. Wow. Tidy Mm. footballer, Liam Toomey. Is he? Left-footed goal scorer. Very clinical, top corner, bottom corner. Mm. Maybe a better footballer than Graham Potter. I mean, I saw Graham Potter on loan at Wickham in the early 90s in our infamous 5-2 home defeat to Colchester. Um, That was his debut. He was in that? Yeah. Didn't didn't have a good game, you know, but clearly... As we know in football, often the um, the best players don't make the best managers, and I think you know he's uh, as Liam was saying. I think he's earned his chance, and um, yeah, you do kind of wonder if Brighton hadn't started so well whether he would have got it. But mm. here we are. Michael, are you excited by the notion of Graham Potter in charge of Chelsea, or does a little part of you die inside as with with him leaving Brighton? I'm a bit disappointed that it looks like Potter will be leaving. Um, because I think he, he does leave with unfinished business at Brighton. I mean, it's not like they really had a great finish under him. They finished ninth last season. And I think it felt like, you know, the, the way this season started, it, it felt like it was building up to this season. And maybe they were going to do something that for Brighton standards would be historic, i.e. finishing in the European places, which they've never done before. Um, so, yeah, it does seem a shame. I, I think Chelsea's a club that seems very unstable at the moment. The ownership, I'm, I'm not convinced they really know what they're doing. There's no sporting director in place. Um, it's a huge step up in terms of the players he's going to be working with. I mean, I think Brighton, obviously, are a smaller club than Chelsea. But actually, even by the, the standards of where they were in the league, it was notable that Potter was really working with almost nobodies. A lot of the time, with respect, he was plucking you know players from absolutely nowhere and turning them into good players. And I think it's a very different job 
to work with kind of fully formed superstars that are coming in for 50, 60 million pounds. So I think there's a lot of question marks and it just feels like there's a kind of, I can't remember there was a last, the last time a player or manager moved to another club and there was such a widespread feeling of like, oh, that's a shame from everyone. It just feels quite a unusual situation. But I, mm. I mean, I, I, I do rate him as a manager and I, I wish him well. I hope he does well. But I, I think it is a, a very tough job. Right. Tom Williams writing Graham Potter to Chelsea's football equivalent of finding out that the cool indie band you love have signed for a major label and soundtracked an advert for LinkedIn. Yeah. Duncan, what do the numbers say about Thomas Tuchel? Have you got any really juicy stats? Well, he ended with a points per game rate lower than Rafa Benitez, one of Chelsea what? fans' all-time favourite managers. Um, lower I mean, than Frank Lampard? Well, in the last 25 games, he had worse numbers than, than Frank Lampard. Um, won the same number of games, but but lost a couple more. And I think that kind of shows just how much it faded towards the end. It really, It's very rare to see a... A manager starts so well and have you know organised that defence so well they were impregnable for months and then it all fell apart. I mean, in some ways it feels like um, Tuchel kind of condensed every Chelsea manager bit of energy into one thing. Comes in, wins the Champions League, gets the cup finals, um, all falls apart and is gone within you know in less than two years. So yeah, underperforming striker. Yeah, yeah. Ticks all the boxes. So in, mm. he's had the ultimate Chelsea experience in, in many ways. I mean, he, he's, he's never got any of the attackers really fully firing, has he? I mean, I think that's been the main issue. You look at, I mean, how good Timo Werner was at Leipzig, how good Lukaku was at Inter, how good Ziyech was at Ajax, how good Pulisic was at Dortmund, how good Havertz was at Leverkusen. They've all dropped off significantly since they joined Chelsea. And it's almost like they're given such specific roles or so many responsibilities, they don't play their own game. And I think that, Really, that has cost him. I know the defence has gone, has gone badly. But I mean, last year, this time last year, we were t- well. I was thinking Chelsea were pretty much favourites to win the league. It's good that they're bringing in a manager who's famous for getting the attackers firing. Then, if indeed <laughs> Potter is the decision. I mean, Don Michael's point there is the most confusing performance I think of his whole reign was the away game at Arsenal at the start of last season because Lukaku looked amazing there. He kind of played him in the way that he played at Inter, and then. And then just stopped, and it it feels like he he kept trying to change all the time um, how he was going to attack, you know, the players he was going to use to do that, and eventually it just kind of fell apart. Mm. Well, he's been going through a tough year, Thomas Tuchel. What with one thing and another, on the subject of Chelsea's next manager, here's Richard Keyes, who said yesterday, "I wonder if anyone at Chelsea has considered Emma Hayes." For the vacancy running the men's team. Why not, says Richard. She knows the club as well as anyone. Her coaching record is impeccable. After the Lionesses' success this summer, what a statement it would be. We often Richard Richard Keyes in progressive view shocker. Well, I mean, I think uh, should be applauded for that. It's a great shout. Doesn't seem like it's going to happen, Tom. Yeah, I must I must admit, I I find um, Todd Bowley's approach to running Chelsea so far promisingly slipshod um, in the sense that when Roman Abramovich left, we all said, well, you know, they had this mad Russian oligarch running the club, uh, you know, hiring and firing managers at will, splurging money on players left, right and centre. How can they possibly try and recreate, you know, the, the, the unique... Um, alchemy of all that and they've ended up with with an owner who's potentially even more mad than Abramovich who sacked all the kind of most senior technical staff made himself sporting director sacked the manager at pretty much the first opportunity so in actual fact that sort of state of perpetual churn and perpetual drama that Chelsea have, have existed in 
pretty much ever since Abramovich arrived in 2003, just looks set to continue. Um, mm. So, you know, maybe he maybe he isn't going to going to going to change things in, in the way that perhaps we, we might have thought he would. Perhaps uh, one one person's mad, though, is another person's decisive, ready to think outside the box, make the calls that other people just wouldn't think of. We'll see how it plays out for Todd Bowley at Chelsea. Uh, in the meantime, the Champions League campaign off to not the greatest starts with that 1-0 defeat away at Dinamo. Duncan pointing out, though, that while Dinamo celebrated, this may prove to be a false dawn. Duncan, am I right on the previous two occasions that they've won their opening group game? That's against Arsenal in 2015-16 and then against Atlanta 4-0 two years ago. They've gone on to finish bottom of the group and eliminated. Duncan's Very true, yeah. That's mm. um, a false dawn. Let's hope that's the only full dawn in this uh, subject. Indeed. OK, Salzburg-Milan was the other game in that group and it finished 1-1. We'll, uh, we'll come on to uh, the midweek's other games next on the Totally Football Show. Hi, it's Lindsay Hooper here, host of the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Are you still buzzing from the Euros this summer? I know I am. Excited to see the players back in action as the WSL season kicks off? Well, make sure you tune into our weekly podcast because we've got you covered every step of the way. We'll have interviews with the top players in the women's game, plus former pros like Kelly Smith and Karen Bardsley and many more. Just follow or subscribe to the Athletic Women's Football Show wherever you get your podcasts. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. (laughs) 
on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic. This is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Midweek, among the other big stories in the Champions League, Tuesday, Manchester City winning 4-0 in Seville, Erling Haaland with a brace. There was a brace for Mbappe as well as PSG beat Juve 2-1. Real were 3-0 winners at Celtic, although uh, Benzema, Karim Benzema went off injured. And in that group, Shakhtar Donetsk won 4-1 away at Leipzig, who the next day did a Chelsea and fired their manager too, Domenico Tedesco. We'll hear more about Shakhtar shortly. Wednesday, though, in the super tough-looking Group C, Bayern beat uh, Inter 2-0 at San Siro and Barcelona were 5-1 winners over Victoria Pilsen, a Lewandowski hat-trick in that game. Elsewhere, Spurs will be facing Man City this weekend, got a laboured 2-1 win against 10-man Marseille. And there were two big wins in Group A, Ajax beating Rangers 4-0, while in Naples, Liverpool lost 4-1 at the hands of Napoli. And that's where we're going to go next. Zelinski in mezzo, tocco per lui, Alisson, Zelinski ancora, a rete, a rete incredibile, tutta regolare. 4-0, incredibile ripartenza del Napoli. Extraordinary, extraordinary performance. Before we get on to zombie Liverpool, Napoli, how good were they? Brilliant. I mean, you know, they ended with an XG of 4.3, which is obviously boosted by two penalties, but they, they just attacked at will and it's one of the most terrified, out-of-sorts Liverpool performances I've ever seen, particularly under Jurgen Klopp. I mean... To put it into perspective, they they Liverpool allowed nine clear cut chances in that game, um, which is the most in any of Klopp's games in his whole time at Liverpool. Three more than any match. Um, so it could have been, you know, it could have been much much worse. Fourteen percent of those clear cut chances in the whole of match day one in the Champions League this week were you know, given up by Liverpool. So it's 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 up there with one of the worst defensive displays in you know in Champions League group history. I, I would say. Mm. It's uh, they've never had a worse Champions League defeat than this four-one. You mentioned two penalties, one of which they didn't convert, so it could have been it could have been much worse. We, we talked up Napoli before the game, the likes of Ozymen and Kavatskelia, and and they certainly lived up to it. One of the interesting things, Michael, even when Ozymen went off injured, uh, Diego Simeone's son Giovanni Simeone, Cholito came on and performed unbelievably. Yeah, they've got strength in depth, haven't they? I mean, Lozano came on, Elmas came on. They've, they've got a really good squad, Napoli. Um, and there's been quite a lot of turnover in the squad over the last couple of seasons. Um, and obviously lost a, a big player in the summer in uh, Insigne. But yeah, they were excellent. I mean, they, they I think they kind of declared at half-time, didn't they? Because I think if they wanted to keep on attacking, I mean, they, they could have scored more goals. It was, um, yeah. I, I think Liverpool would be relieved to come away from that, having not suffered a really historic defeat. Really, I know four ones a big loss, but uh, yeah, it could have been much worse. I mean, it could have been five or six at, at half time. I mean, you know, the fact that Napoli went in three nil up at the break, having also squandered a penalty, you know, had a, a, an opportunity cleared off the line. There were multiple uh, occasions where you know Liverpool players were, were left sort of statuesque. Um, mm. by like they'd Napoli's heard the referee's attackers. whistle or something. Well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 the most striking image for me was the second goal um, when Andre Frank Zambangisa plays one of the most telegraphed one-twos I think I've ever seen uh, in in Champions League football. 
And none of the Liverpool players react to it. And he he ends up, you know, running through onto, I think it was Zielinski's return pass and, and knocking it past Alisson. And I think that's the really worrying thing for Liverpool is that, you know, there are some mitigating factors to the struggles they've had um, at the start of the season, the, the injuries in midfield, adapting to life without Sadio Mane, etc. But it's the fact that key players of the last few years look so out of sorts. You know, it's one thing for Joe Gomez to have a bit of a nightmare, which he did because he's not a regular starter and, you know, he's up against, uh, at least before he went off, you know, Victor Osserman, one of, one of the quickest strikers in, in Europe. But, you know, for Virgil van Dijk to be giving penalties away um, mm. and, you know, just, just looking like he's in a real tiz, you know, Mo, Mo Salah has obviously gone off the boil in this, this very spectacular way. The absences in midfield mean that they're having to lean on players like James Milner and Harvey Elliott much more than than they would have hoped to and it to me it, it is reminiscent of that huge slump that Liverpool went into midway through the 2020-21 season and it just feel like there is there is some kind of you know psychological element to it there is there has been some kind of of, of crash there yeah I think Tom's right and what's interesting about that was obviously that came 2020-21 season with you know, the central defence all injured. So they were dropping Fabinho back there and it was unsettling the midfield. So I guess you could argue that the same, you know, the midfield is very empty at the moment. James Milner had one of the worst performances I've seen of a, of an English player in the Champions League. But, you know, this time they do have Gomez, they do have Van Dijk fit, but that's not helping. I think they did look a bit better when Matip came on um, at the start of the second half. And I do think he's probably their most important defender now, arguably player in some ways. He does allow them to play in a slightly different way and I think they do look better when, when Matip plays so keeping him fit is probably the key to to them recovering from, from this start but I mean yeah it, it just they do look psychologically broken really I mean I think maybe Luis Diaz is probably the only player possibly Harvey Elliott that can that can come out of that game with, with their head held high but mm. um, there's a lot of work to do Well it's interesting I completely agree about Diaz and Elliott and I think that's really interesting because what have they got in common? They're the only two players on that side who are relative newcomers. I mean, they came into the side in the last year or half a year in terms of the, uh, Diaz. And it does feel like the rest of the squad who's been there for a while is, is quite jaded. And the two exceptions are the two ones who, who are a bit fresher. I thought it was interesting what um, Klopp said afterwards in his interview. And I'm always reluctant to read too much into the precise wording of people speaking their second language. But Klopp obviously is very good in English. And he said, we have to reinvent ourselves which is quite a strong phrase to use. I can't really remember a manager saying that five, six games into the new season. And I don't know what he means by that, whether he means in terms of the shape, in terms of dropping off a little bit more and maybe not trying to play such a a high-risk defensive line. But he clearly feels that there are quite big problems. And it's not just this game. I mean, I know they had the 9-0 against Bournemouth. But if you take that away, and I realise that's a bit of a harsh thing to do because they won <laughs> 9-0, but they haven't played well in the other games. I mean, from the from the first uh, game against Fulham, I thought they were really lucky to get a point in that. They drew with Palace, they drew drawn with Everton. Uh, I thought they were really poor against Manchester United as well at a time when Manchester United felt in crisis themselves. So it's, it has been a really poor start to the season. I feel like there's something of the Arsene Wenger's arsenal to Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool in the sense that having everyone buying in and having everyone pulling in the same direction is almost more important for, for this Liverpool team than it is for other teams because they, they are not competing on equal footing financially. They've been performing a bit of a high wire act in recent seasons, trying to compete with City and, and trying to compete with you know clubs like Man United who, who you know are capable of outspending them. And the, the kind of extra value they get from everyone 
you know, buying into things and being committed enables mm. them to, to, to bridge that gap. But it also means that when there is a slacking off on a psychological level, when, you know, Klopp's physical demands end up becoming just a little bit too much, I think it exposes them to this kind of slump in a way that you don't get at, at clubs like City, for example, where the whole setup is just more systematized and, and mm. they're able to kind of use those advantages they have uh, and, and, and that Liverpool don't have. And that's why I guess people are making comparisons with the situation when Klopp was at Dortmund, where they were fighting against a vastly more resourced side in Bayern Munich. In the seventh season there, there was that terrible campaign where they spent most of it down around the relegation zone. And if you go back a bit further, Klopp's seventh season, this is his seventh season at Liverpool, at Mainz, they were relegated. Quick word further on, on, on Napoli before we have more gloom and doom at Anfield. Was it the third goal, meanwhile, where uh, Cavacchelia tried to get past Joe Gomez, actually lost the ball, but still had time to go back and round and collect it again and set up Giovanni Simeone, who then, lovely scenes, kisses the, the Champions League symbol, which he's had tattooed on his wrist since he was 13, because he's always dreamed of playing in this tournament. Magnificent. <laughs> anyway... Well, uh, I, I mean, I got the Johnson's paint trophy tattooed on my wrist in the <laughs> same. You, Duncan? How's that theory? worked out for you? Hasn't. No, mm. very poor. I don't think you should be able to get the trophy tattooed on you unless you win it. It's the badge. It's a football. Yeah, it's the football. Oh, okay, it's football. Yeah. Okay. And also the fact he was only thirteen. Um, yeah, that's all. Again, I mean, I guess if, Diego, if your dad he? is Diego yeah. Simeone, you are going to be, you know, encouraged to toughen up, perhaps slightly more swiftly than children of other former players. But his his dad's his dad's I mean since then his dad's lost the final twice so he's had his he's had heartbreak in the competition. Mm. I I I think I mean if he was to get the tattoo today, having appeared in the competition, I think that is that's kind of more acceptable for me. It's like a first cap, but thirteen that's very young. It is young. It is young. Mamma che Napoli, mother. What a Napoli. That was Gazetta's headline on Thursday morning. Phenomenapoli. Phenomenal Napoli. Uh, that was Corriere della Sport. A night that, uh, for the Neapolitans, certainly will go down in history. Next up, they are going to be taking on Rangers, who lost 4-0 away at Ajax. Manager Giovanni von Broncos saying post-match, to compete in the Champions League, you need hundreds of millions. It's kind of the Scott Parker uh, protocol there. Uh, as for Ajax, next up they, of course, will be facing Liverpool, which is going to be interesting. The reinvented Liverpool, of course, by then. Oh, that'll be fine. I mean, Rangers and Celtic realising what it's like to compete in a league where there's teams with loads of money and resources and it's hard to, you know, get a result. Hmm. But, um, yeah, Rangers weren't very good in that game. Um, Ajax literally toyed with them for, for sort of 10, 20-minute spells at a time. And quite a funny... Slash, well, is it funny? Not really that funny, but um, uh, Stephen Bergwijn's goal, uh, nice finish. We don't see players go round the keeper much these days compared to what they used to, in my opinion. But um, as he ran off to celebrate, he got cramp, so he went from like it's quite good to see a player's face go from joy to ow, this really hurts in in one swift motion. So, just before we move on to some of the other big stories from midweek, Michael, how confident are you that Klopp's going to reinvent? Is Liverpool in time for Ajax and the other big games coming up? I'm relatively confident. I mean, they had that slump two years ago, as we were all mentioning, but they did bounce back and then the next season were, were competitive again. Um, I think it'll be difficult this time around. I think without Mane, that's he's a really key player. 
I mean, I watched the Bayern game and it was just a reminder of how good he is and how lively and energetic he is. Yeah, it's tough. But I mean, Klopp has, a, you know, he's, he's bought himself, I think, a lot of time and a lot of goodwill to turn it around. Very good. Elsewhere, as you mentioned, Bayern looked good at San Siro winning 2-0 uh, this midweek. That was on Wednesday, wasn't it? Uh, with Leroy Sané in fine form as well as Mane. Bayern Munich now unbeaten in the last 29 group stage games. Even despite their recent stutters in the Bundesliga and the departure of Robert Lewandowski. Michael, you saw Bayern. Have you got them marked down as one of your, your early tips? Yeah, probably. I mean, I think they're probably the most consistent side over recent years. They're always a contender. I think it's always difficult to judge their level because the Bundesliga is just so ridiculously uncompetitive these days. But they were really, really dominant in this game. I was surprised how bad Inter were, actually. They just seemed really devoid of ideas, hitting long balls to Dzeko, which didn't really cause Bayern many problems. And uh, yeah, they were exciting. They were good to watch Bayern. It was interesting what they were doing down the left, where they had both Alfonso Davies, very wide, uh, and very high and that meant that Sané could come inside and almost play an inside left role and uh, obviously scored a really really good opener running in behind and collecting the ball and not sure whether he was credited with the second in the end might have been a, an own goal by Bastoni but a brilliant little 3-4 if I can call it that to get in behind <laughs> and uh, I think the finish was going wide but I mean he looked really rejuvenated actually um, and there was just so much so much speed so much raw speed in that Bayern side, which does feel quite different without Lewandowski. I mean, obviously mm. a brilliant player, brilliant goal-scoring record, but everything just based around him being in that zone. And I think with Mane and Muller and Kuman, there's so much flexibility. And I think Nagelsmann probably suits him better to be able to be more flexible between games. Brilliant. Well, I think it was D'Ambrosio who got the og, uh, rather than Bastoni. Right. Bayern then with a big win. Same for Lewandowski's new side, Barcelona who beat Victoria Pilsen 5-1. Barcelona are back, or maybe just playing Victoria Pilsen. We'll find out more maybe next time out when Barcelona play Bayern Munich. Oh, my word, them again. Anyway, Lewandowski got a hat-trick in that game. We'll talk up that match ahead of the Match Day 2 fixture next week. Tom and Michael, you both watched Paris Saint-Germain, another of the favourites, in their Tuesday night clash with Juventus. Conclusions? I felt that some of the football PSG produced in the first half was about as Harlem Globetrotters as they've ever looked in the, the, the Qatari era. I mean, Mbappe's goals were absolutely delightful. The first, a volley running onto a scoop pass from Neymar, and then the second one, another volley um, after uh, a 1-2 with uh, Ashraf Hakimi. Um, and, you know, in the first half, I mean, there were a couple of occasions when Juve got in behind, but it, it felt like, you know, PSG were, were potentially on the brink of, of racking up a, a really handsome score. Um, and then Massimiliano Allegri changed things up at, 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 at half-time. Juve got back into the game, Weston McKennie heading in at the back post from a corner. Um, and although PSG had opportunities to, to score more, it ended up being a, a, a more narrow victory than certainly the, the first kind of 25 minutes, half an hour suggested it would be. Um, so actually, perhaps not all that unhelpful for PSG in terms of kind of expectations, both at the club and, and outside, in that had they completely steamrolled Juventus, you know, four or five nil, then it, you know, it gets people talking in a way that a, a narrow 2-1 defeat doesn't. Um, and, and I think a few signs as well in the the kind of space that, that, that PSG leave in behind, particularly when one of your centre-backs uh, is Sergio Ramos, um, and how that can 
how that could potentially be exploited. Um, and as, as Michael wrote in his, his piece for The Athletic, the almost complete absence of defensive implication from the front three, which is something you can get away with in the group phase, probably less so in the, in the knockout rounds. Mm. Anything to add, Michael? Yeah, I agree with what Tom said. It, it was classic PSG. I mean, they've changed the system for this year. Uh, Gautier's gone to 3-4-3 with all the width coming from Hakimi and Mendes. And I think the big impact to that is that Messi, Neymar and Mbappe are more central than they've been before. They don't have so much responsibility to provide the width. And they're closer together and combine more. And like Tom says, at, at times it was almost like they were scoring like headers and volleys goals. It was just they were having a lot of fun. And then there was a great three-minute period in the second half where first... Neymar went through, maybe could have passed to Mbappe, didn't. Mbappe was furious. Then two minutes later, Mbappe went through, definitely should have passed to Neymar, didn't. Neymar was furious. And what happened? The front three just stopped defending. And then they just defended with kind of seven outfielders for the next few minutes. And, I, you know, I think Gautier is a really good coach. He's, he's quite interesting tactically, I think. But I, you're just not going to get anything different, are you, from from that front three? And I think there's also an argument to say that Messi and Mbappe and Neymar are probably considering the first half of this season basically a warm-up for the World Cup. That's what it's all about. And I think after the World Cup, there's going to be psychologically and physically a slump from a lot of big players. Not just those three players, but a lot of big players because that's what it's all about for a lot of players. And uh, yeah, I think PSG will look fantastic in the group stage. But on that evidence, it will just be the same as, as it's been previously in the knockout stage. They're just not cohesive enough as a team. Elsewhere midweek in the Champions League, there were wins for Manchester City and Spurs. We'll get onto those shortly. Celtic, their big game, their return to the competition at home to Real Madrid. That ended with a 3-0 Real Madrid win. Heads held high, though, and all that. Perhaps the most remarkable story, though, midweek was Shakhtar Donetsk, who went to RB Leipzig and beat them 4-1. Shakhtar only scored two goals in all of last season's group stage, but putting four past Leipzig here, even in normal times, it would be a great result for that club, but in their current situation, it's just extraordinary. Joining us now from Ukrainian football podcast Zoria Londonsk is Andrew Todos. Andrew, uh, first of all, welcome to the show. How remarkable is it that Shakhtar are even in the Champions League, let alone getting a massive win like this in it? Thanks for having me. And yeah, it's absolutely remarkable because the only reason Shakhtar are actually in the group stage of the Champions League, well, automatically, this campaign is because Russia uh, were banned by UEFA from their competitions. So as a result of, I think, Zenit dropping out or whoever the champion was, uh, Shakhtar took their place. So as a result of, obviously, the war and everything that's going on, Shakhtar have had a minor positive out of that from that perspective. And the fact that they are playing in the Champions League as well helps obviously magnify the cause for Ukrainian football, for Ukraine as a country as well. And it keeps everything that's going on relative to those people that may not follow politics or the news so closely, but do obviously follow the biggest club competition in the world. The situation around their Champions League games is utterly unprecedented, of course, as, as you'd expect from a, a team from a land that's part occupied by an invading country. In the course of the escalation of Russia's in invasion, they've lost half their squad players when FIFA essentially gave clearances for players in Russia and Ukraine to suspend their contracts. I think 14 players departed. The manager left as well. 
And the Ukrainian League, which was suspended when uh, Russia launched the full-scale invasion back in, in February, has just got back underway, but under very, very special circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. So, as you mentioned, the war began back in February. The season was about to restart then, got postponed, then it got cancelled. And Shakhtar, because they were top of the table at the winter break, uh, won the, the league. They didn't actually win the title, but they got the Champions League spot, per se. And then for about a month and a half, all the players were staying in their bomb shelters. Some of them left, as you've already mentioned. And then they went on this special tour around Europe, playing friendlies and raising money. So they hadn't really played a competitive match until the Ukrainian Premier League started uh, about three weeks ago. Um, so a completely new look Shakhtar that I think a lot of people would probably be surprised by the fact that they got that such a result in the Champions League in that opening game uh, because literally I think eight of the 11 starters were academy products of Shakhtar and they only had one foreigner in that starting lineup and that was uh, Brazilian Lucas Taylor who had just arrived so on the whole it's a completely new look Shakhtar a lot of youth um they're trying to obviously represent Ukraine as best as they possibly can. And I think a lot of people in Ukraine who may have been a bit partisan to the fact that, you know, Shakhtar wasn't everyone's cup of tea back in the day or even pre 24th of the second. They're all getting behind them in Europe and backing them all the way. Mm. Hard times because nothing new for this club who since 2014 have essentially been refugees having to move from their, their home at the Donbass Arena to Lviv and then Kharkiv and then Kiev while kind of everybody else went on as normal. One of the players who wasn't in the starting lineup but has stuck with them is Lasina Traore, who, who got the fourth goal. Who stood out for you in this performance and how much do you think Shakhtar can sustain this? Next up, they've got Celtic in Warsaw, where they'll be playing their home games. Yeah, absolutely. I'm planning on being at that game in Warsaw and I think it's going to be quite a big occasion. For me, so far, I think Traore, it's a big boost that he remained. He's a great goal-scoring striker and he was in great form until he had a quite horrific injury last season at the very start of it and had to miss more or less the whole campaign. And the fact that he stayed with Shakhtar, you know, through loyalty, said, thanks for helping me with my rehabilitation. And now he's getting goals. That's already a, a big positive. Um I think the biggest star that will probably come out of this Champions League campaign this year is certainly Mihailo Mudrik, who had a big performance against RB Leipzig um, in the week. Two assists, a goal. Obviously, in that last week of the transfer window, he was linked with Arsenal. Apparently, he had a bid rejected from Everton. Brentford win for him by Leverkusen. So there's a lot of interest in him, but... Shakhtar have hauled off uh, 30 million euro bids and want about 50 million for him. So he's a very exciting talent, uh, close dribbling, lots of energy, been working on his finishing of late. And I think uh, he's probably Ukraine's next big thing. Good Lord. All right. Well, Celtic coming up next then in Warsaw. That'll be on Wednesday of next week. And who knows, in the longer term future, fingers crossed that they could finally be back in the Donbass Arena before too long. Andrew, thank you so much for, for joining us today. And uh, you, your podcast, Zorilon Donsk, uh, there'll be a new one out next week. Is that right? Yeah, we're hoping to get one out uh, ahead of the Champions League matches. Brilliant. All right. Excellent. Thank you for being with us today. Catch up with you soon. Cheers. Andrew Todos there. As for Leipzig, as we mentioned before, conceding four goals in that game for the second time in a week. 
And that was enough for the club to pull the plug on their manager, Domenico Tedesco, dismissed Wednesday morning after 10 months in the club. The man taking over from Tedesco is Marco Rosa, who was sacked last May, you'll recall, by Borussia Dortmund. Oh, three guesses who Leipzig are facing next in the Bundesliga. Yeah, that's right. Football, eh? Uh, Up next, let's talk about the Premier League. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Premier League match day seven this weekend. Standout fixture, I put it to you, is Manchester City against Spurs. They are the Premier League's two remaining unbeaten sides. They're also the only two British clubs to actually win midweek in the Champions League. Now, Spurs have got that remarkable record against Man City. They did the double over Pep's side last season. In fact, they've won four of the last five Premier League meetings. Michael Cox, can you explain this? And do you think they can do it against a Erling Haaland Man City? Uh, No, it feels to me like Haaland is just slightly unstoppable at the moment. I'm interested to see how he plays against Romero. It feels like Romero will really relish that particular battle. Um, but yeah, I mean, Holland, uh, he was obviously going to settle quite well, but his, his scoring record just is quite extraordinary. And he's scoring goals that just seem quite repeatable and quite easy as well. I mean, the goal he scored in the Champions League was quite similar to one of the goals he scored at the weekend, just tapping in almost an open goal from a fantastic De Bruyne cross. And uh, yeah, at the moment, it does feel like he's going to just run away with things. Duncan, what's your top stat on Erling Holland? Well, I mean... He's played 20 games in the Champions League. Only 31 players in the history of the competition have scored more goals than him. So he's on a trajectory. You know, like the kind of energy gas price graphs you see in the papers at the moment, where like Ronaldo and Messi are maybe sort of, you know, gas prices in Holland. um, And Holland's very much UK, you know, just rising up. I mean, Ronaldo didn't score until his Mm. 27th Champions League appearance. And Holland's already on 25. He's, you know, he's nine clear of the previous best um, after 20 appearances, which was Reed van Nistelrooy and Roberto Soldado, as someone who didn't enjoy mm-hmm. a Man City Spurs fixture in the past. And in terms of fastest of 25 goals, he's done it 10 games quicker than Ruud van Nistelrooy and Pippo Inzaghi. So he's in a class of his own. And yeah, I, I, like Michael said, he's he's unstoppable. I mean... Injury, I guess, is probably the only thing that, that could hamper him. If he, if he stays injury-free for his career, he'll be the Champions League top scorer at the end of it. Bournemouth stopped him scoring. Yeah, or Scott Parker manages every club in Europe. They're the only, um, <laughs> only two things. We're talking earlier about the World Cup. The, the funny thing is that, I mean, he started the season probably the best-performing player in Europe and he's not going to be at the World Cup, which mm. seems like a massive anomaly. And it, of course, comes back to the fact that he made a you know, fatal decision to represent Norway mm. rather than England. I mean, he, he could have could represented, the con- he could have represented the country of his birth, been getting on the end of Harry Kane's through balls, maybe Sterling and Foden supplying him from out wide. I think England would be, what, England are probably about sixth favourites. Where would they be? Second, third favourites at least, I think? Yeah, well, you could have the Grealish, Foden, Haaland front three. What if he declared for Wales? He probably could. Technically, on, could yeah. On, on on what grounds? Well, I think anyone can declare for Wales for hmm. fancy a run out. So. Special dispensation. Struggling Seville have now drawn one and lost four of their five games this season. Uh, Julian Lopetegui very much under fire uh, as the manager 
there. Facing City this weekend are Tottenham, whose success was a lot more measured against Marseille. Further evidence of Richarlison's importance to Conte's side, Tom. Yeah, with another another slow-burning Spurs win, um, similar to some of their recent Premier League wins. You, you know, you think back to the, the home win over Wolves, the win at Forest, the win against Fulham last weekend. They tend not to blow you away, but they're just about doing enough. And it was a similar story uh, against Marseille, who I thought gave a really good account of themselves. We saw some of the, the pressing front foot football that, that Igor Tudor has, has been trying to bring in since he took over at Marseille in the summer. Um, and there wasn't a huge amount to report in the first half. I mean, Harry Kane had a, a chance that he dragged wide. Matteo Guendouzi, who was as round uh, as roundly booed as you would expect any ex-Arsenal player to be roundly booed at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, um, had a shot that the Hugo Lloris pushed away. Um, but, you know, Marseille were, 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 holding, were holding firm. And then two minutes into the second half, Harry Kane sets Son Heung-min running, running in on goal. Chancel Mbemba brings him down and is sent off. And then there was a kind of, there was a sense of inevitability about it. Um, and, you know, Marseille held out until 76th minute, but then conceded two goals, uh, two very similar goals, left-wing crosses that were quite poorly defended, uh, headed in by Richarlison, his first two goals in the Champions League. Um, and I think this is the week when we've really seen what Richarlison is is gonna is gonna bring to Spurs? Um, he had that uh, that very talked about cameo at uh, at Forest, uh, where his uh, keepy uppies, um, you know, provoked with, the ire, mm. provoked the ire of um, various Forest players and uh, football fans nationwide. Um, uh, and then uh, against Fulham at the weekend, you know, he sets up the goal for for Pierre Emil Hojbjerg. He has a goal rolled out for offside, and then again. Last night against Marseille, he's the guy who ends up making the breakthrough. So yeah, you you can see what he is, what he is bringing to Spurs, and I think his emergence and and the kind of energy and the drive that he brings to their performances has arrived at quite a convenient time because Son Heung-min has not had a good start to the season, is sort of struggling for form, um, and it 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 just makes it it makes it easier for Spurs to to get through games like the one against Marseille, like some of their most recent league fixtures where they're not really firing on all cylinders, but they're still able to get the job done. All right, four wins in the last five meetings with Man City. Michael, is that all going to change this time? Uh, I'd have City favourites, yeah. I mean, maybe that's the obvious thing to say, but Tottenham, like you say, have a good record against Manchester City. But I can't remember many times this season I've been at all impressed with Tottenham. Feels like they've they've been so sluggish for such long periods. Okay, maybe you can say in when they won at City in February or whenever that was, they were on the back foot for long periods, then just had four or five chances out of nowhere, and they're always going to cause a threat on the break. Um, but yeah, at the moment they just aren't firing on all cylinders, and um, yeah, I would have City down to win. Okay, well it is a clash potentially of this striker City signed against the striker City didn't sign. You recall. Harry Kane, the winner of which will go top of the table on Saturday. Uh, current leaders Arsenal are going to be playing on Sunday. They're a point clear of Man City as it stands. They're hosting Everton, the Gunners. In the early kickoff on Saturday, Fulham hosts Chelsea and whoever's in charge of them. Bournemouth will be facing Brighton in what could be the interim manager derby. Southampton hosts Brentford. Liverpool have Wolves, who could have Diego Costa with them after all because they finally got him a work permit. That's exciting. A Leicester take on Aston Villa ahead of that Man City Spurs game on Sunday. Apart from Arsenal-Everton, there's West Ham-Newcastle and Crystal Palace 
taking on Man United. And then Monday, Leeds, Nottingham Forest. We'll be reviewing all those games come Monday, but pick one each to have a bang on. Tom. Liverpool Wolves, Diego Costa, just Mm. another slice of exceptional Premier League narrative. Liverpool reeling from this historic thrashing uh, in Naples, coming off the back of a dispiriting performance in, in the derby, trying to get their season together. What could be better than a home game against Wolves, who've got the joint worst attack in the division? Nothing to worry about too much there, but oh no, who's this? This shadowy figure who has emerged, again, you know, completely unexpectedly, Diego Costa, back in English football, ready to get stuck into those, um, you know, confident, shy uh, Liverpool centre-backs. Yeah. And possibly ready to rub up against Darwin Nunez as well. Liverpool, by the way, have won all of their last 11 Premier League meetings with Wolves. Duncan? Just a, a moment's quiet reflection for poor old Sasa Kaladzic, who, you know, played mm. 45 minutes and did his ACL. And, you know, you know how much I like a, a big man. And can can Costa fill that hole? I'm not sure, but we'll see. Crikey. Um, the game I'm looking forward to, probably you mentioned it a minute ago, um, I would call it the UCAS form Classico. That did my cousin go to university there? I can't quite remember. Bournemouth v Brighton. Um, <laughs> arguable. The South Coast should just have one team. But um, it's obviously very interesting if Potter has gone to Chelsea because Brighton are in exceptional form. Bournemouth um, are very much not. They've only had 34 shots this season, 22 fewer than any other side. You know, it's all going to be about the reaction of Brighton. You know, they are a good team, but without Potter, I think that leads game last weekend is going to maybe go down as one of those sort of sunlit memories that, mm. that all, you know, preceded a sadder time because I think... If he goes. If he goes. Um, mm. But yeah, I think it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. These, I mean, it, although we know how well Brighton have started, these are the sort of games Bournemouth need to pick up points from. Yes, right. they won at Forest last weekend, but um, I think this is poised to be quite an interesting game. Well, Gary O'Neill for Bournemouth, uh, proving how effective an interim manager can be, at least short-term, picking up four points from a possible six so far. Michael, which fixture is getting you most excited? I'm quite intrigued by Leicester against Aston Villa because I think they've been probably the two most underperforming teams in the league. I think they're squads who, I know Leicester have lost a lot of players, but I think they've probably still got top-half squad. I think there's a suspicion the mood at both clubs is, is quite low. There's obviously the thing with uh, Gerard against Rogers, which I think is quite interesting. Um, Gerard actually, in his, I think it was his third autobiography, certainly not his first, I think his third one, he's very complimentary about Rogers um, as a manager. And and kind of reading between the lines, I feel like it's almost like Rogers convinced him to become a manager. I know some of the previous managers, like Julier, Benitez, maybe Gerard felt a little bit constrained, but I think Rogers was was quite good for him late in his career, shifted him into a different role and obviously came quite close to winning the title. Obviously, they met before in Old Firm derbies. Um, so, yeah, it's Saturday 3pm, so um, I won't be watching it live and I'd mm. be a little bit surprised if it's the uh, the game of the day on Sky. But I think it is a game where both managers really need, really need a result, to be mm. honest. All right. Fox is a bottom after five defeats in a row. Just to quickly round out one or two facts and figures about the other games, Fulham against Chelsea. Fulham have only won one of their last 40 meetings with Chelsea. They have got Alexander Mitrovic firing, though, with six goals in six games. Arsenal's clash with Everton won't feature Jordan Pickford. 
After his Merseyside derby heroics, he's out for three to four weeks with a thigh injury, as Mbegovic is expected to deputise. Always good to bring in a goal scorer. <laughs> <laughs> Begovic's last Premier League game was the 5-1 defeat at the Emirates. Oh, the final <laughs> day of last season. Crystal Palace against Man United, who are looking to make it five Premier League wins in a row. Man United have Real Sociedad in the Europa League on Thursday. West Ham, who are in the Conference League against Stout Bucharest, but uh, now known as FCSB. They are hosting Newcastle and Leeds taking on Nottingham Forest on Monday night. Have Forest stopped signing players? No, no, they have not. Uh, they've just picked up their 22nd new player since the end of last season with free agent Serge Aurier joining them there. Crikey. <laughs> Even the transfer um, window closing. Can't stop them signing players. I mean, what, a, what an achievement. It's an illness. Um, there's a lot of pressure on the old... VAR man, whoever it is, for West Ham Newcastle after last weekend, he'll be like, <laughs> unless unless a dog gets on the pitch and bites someone, I think anything goes in that game. Brilliant. Also this weekend, the WSL returns. And we'll touch on that and the big transfer news from that league next. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Kaz B says, can we have a word on the world record fee for Kira Walsh as she moves from Man City to the mighty Barcelona Femini? Is this a precedent of larger money fees in the women's game? Well, Kaz B, Michael Cox sat down with Kira only the other day to review her player of the match display in the Euro 2022 Final, Michael, were you caught? Were you taken aback by the uh, the what's it four hundred thousand pound move to Barcelona? Well, I think we knew that the transfer was was on the cards. It is a, a big amount of money, and I think it is quite a big surprise, really, because I mean she's a fantastic player, was clearly the best player in the the Euros final. But it's not often you would get a world record transfer fee for a defensive midfielder. Um, that is quite unusual. It's usually attacking midfielders or star strikers. But I think that probably sums up Barcelona. And, you know, they, they're they probably more Barcelona than the men's side have been over the last few years in terms of they play such a kind of pure brand of passing football. And they always want intelligent players in the midfield zone. So they have got other options in there. It'll be interesting to see how they format the side, whether they'll, they'll play a kind of a double pivot rather than just Walsh at the base. Obviously, Alexia Puteas is out for most of the season with an injury, so they've got some places to fill. Um, but it's a really exciting move. I mean, just to have an English player going over to Barcelona as a world record transfer fee is, yeah, it's an incredible story. And, a, you know, such a kind of understated, relatively unheralded player, I'd say, in, before the Euros. Um, she's now, yeah, an absolute superstar. So it's fascinating. Brilliant. Man City with plenty of changes ahead of their opening game against Arsenal, as well as Walsh. They've lost Lucy Bronze, also to Barcelona. Caroline Weir to Real Madrid. Georgia Stamway has gone to Bayern Munich, while Ellen White and Jill Scott have now retired. The The big game of this opening round in WSL is Man City, hosting Arsenal, who were so narrowly pipped by Chelsea to the title on the final day of last season. Uh, Emma Hayes' side winning their third championship in a row. Who, who are the favourites this time around, Michael? 
I think it's difficult to see it being dramatically different to last year. Chelsea obviously have won it last three years and I think they'll go into it as the favourites. I think Arsenal will be a little bit better than last year. I think having Black Stenius there for a whole season will help. Made a couple of good signings, Lena Hurtig going in there. City, you have to suspect, will fall away. I mean, they've lost their entire midfield. Mm. To lose Walsh, Stanway and uh, Caroline Weir, three such big sides. And of course, Caroline Weir scored the winner against them in the Champions League qualifier in her first game for Real Madrid. I mean, I, I can't remember a side, you know, with the exception of relegation or real financial problems, I can't remember a side having a worse transfer window than Manchester City. It's just incredible. Mm. Um, so I, I think maybe Manchester United will come into the equation a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think same as last, yeah, same as last year, Chelsea with Arsenal, their, their closest competitors. Chelsea facing West Ham uh, earlier on Sunday. The season kicking off Saturday lunchtime with Spurs against Man United. Are, are Man City funded from an entirely different part of the Abu Dhabi uh, state investment group than, than the men's side? You mean in terms of not being able to keep their players? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a question. I do think there does seem to be a case actually at both Manchester clubs of, of kind of just overlooking the importance of the women's side. I mean, I gather that um, Ella Toon and Alessia Russo, who obviously made such a big impact for England in the summer, were just on really poor contracts and uh, and have obviously used their performances at the Euros to try and get better ones. But there is still a kind of just a weird lack of investment Um and it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, in terms of City receiving that world record transfer fee, presumably the women's side retains all that. You'd certainly hope so because they've developed the player. Um, but whether, well, yeah, they're probably not going to be able to invest it in time to to boost them for this season. But yeah, there is still a continued uh, issue, I think, with not even just investment, just a lack of attention given to the women's side at, at times, I think. Mm. Well, the journey continues this weekend as another WRCL season gets underway. The Athletics, uh, the Athletic Women's Football Podcast is back, uh, I think, right now with a full season preview to get you all sorted uh, with the Championship in Prospect. Brilliant. That brings us to the end, though, of today's Totally Football Show. Many thanks, then, to Tom Williams, Duncan Alexander and Michael Cox for today. Lynn Toomey and Andrew Todos as well. And listener, you, with producer Charlie. Uh, we'll be back on Monday reviewing all the action in the Premier League and beyond. So do join us then. For now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.